Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Viola's Jennifer Arnold is having a remarkable career. Sharing her gift passed down from her mother, Jennifer earned her union card in her youth. She often joined her father on stage with his jazz band. She is living her dream. She landed as a violist in the Oregon Symphony and played with them for 15 years, then later moved on to become the director of artistic planning and orchestral planning for the Richmond Symphony in Virginia. She was pivotal in helping them navigate through the pandemic. She is also a performing member of the Gateway Festival Symphony, the Sphinx Symphony, and the Oregon Bach Festival. Her passion for amplifying diverse voices led her to become one of the founding members of the Black Orchestral Network, a collective of Black orchestral artists working to elevate their voices, share their stories, and their experiences. We are so lucky to have Jennifer Arnold with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Miss Jennifer Arnold. You are a, say the word for me, because I want to say violinist. Violist. Violist. But I play the violin as well. Yeah. Oh, is that two different ways of learning or you, it's easily transferring one instrument to the next? It's not so easy, but it's not so different. So, I mean, a viola, I always try to explain it. It's we're the middle child of the family. That's what I tell <laughs> when I do family concerts and stuff. We're the middle child of the family. It's held the same way as a violin. It's a little longer and a little lower. So it's the equivalent of the alto voice in a choir and violin is a soprano voice. So they're held the same way. They have three of the four same strings. So their basics are the same, but they're very actually different in ways that we don't need to go into for this podcast. (laughs) But if anyone's ever interested. (laughs) I'm always interested because as a kid, I played the violin and Mm -hmm. I always loved the symphony. Even as a kid, I would go into my room, turn up the classical music because my mother played classical piano. And I would conduct because I always wanted to be a conductor because I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And even in the cartoons, the conductor was the coolest kid to me. So it was very interesting to come across your organization and to realize that there was a full scope of Black people who play classical music because it's rarely seen. And after your 15 years at the Oregon Symphony, you're now the director of, give me the full title. (laughs) I'm the director of artistic planning and orchestral operations for the Richmond Symphony. Or I was as of December 1. Now I'm fully the artistic advisor for the Richmond Symphony now that I'm living abroad for the next 18 months. So so what's the difference in the two roles? So mine is much more an advisory role because I can't be there day to day. And so when I was the director of artistic planning and orchestral operations, I oversaw the artistic part, a department. So that means the production department that puts on the shows, the personnel management, the management of the orchestra, I should say, making sure that the orchestra functions and more importantly functions happily (laughs) because musicians can be quirky so that they can perform to their best on stage. I also manage the music library, which 
houses the music and distributes the music to the musicians so they can prepare the staff conductors and music director. I work very closely with the music director to help program and hire guest artists for all of our shows. And I believe we had over probably 60 to 80 shows a year. So we program those shows. I specifically went into artistic planning from the Oregon Symphony as a musician on stage because I really saw a need, and as we all do, for diversifying programming with orchestras and creating space and opportunity for primarily Black artists, but artists, a more diverse array of artists on stage in specifically the classical music field because orchestras have been doing it for a while in their pops and their other genre programming. But on stage in terms of classical music, it's just slow. So one of the reasons why I helped start this organization, Black Orchestral Network, but also why I left my performing job for an administration job, just because, you know, we always talk about it needs to leadership. We need to be in more leadership roles. We have to have a seat at the table. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All of that sounds so incredible, but I'm really curious to know where did your journey with the viola begin? Yeah, it's a great, I love telling this story. So my parents are both educators. They were both, they started out as teachers in the Cleveland, Ohio, I should say, municipal school district. That's how they met as union members, union reps. And I got my union start pretty early. (laughs) And then they eventually got married and they had my brothers and I, and they really, they both, oh, I should add, they both played instruments because back in the day, almost everyone played an instrument. I mean, there's some interesting articles about out there about how pianos were in every home. The pianos were like the sofas of the time. You know, everybody had a piano. So my parents, same thing. They had pianos in their houses and they grew up loving and playing music. My mom actually played viola. That was the instrument she was given in middle school. And that led her to get a full scholarship to Central State University. Otherwise, she probably would not have been able to go to college because she came from a large family and they just couldn't afford it. So that allowed her to become a teacher. She eventually switched her music ed degree to an education degree, but she never stopped playing. She always loved it. And then my dad was in a jazz band when I was a kid. So on the, yeah, in the weekends, he'd play keyboard with this band called, what was their name? I just totally forgot. Oh, the Bassliners in Cleveland. And so (laughs) for like 20 years, he was in this band. So I had a very interesting childhood where when I was getting better at the violin at like seven or eight or nine, I'd spend my weekends with my dad in the bar. <laughs> playing with the band. I'd hop in a little bit. On, you know, they'd, they'd give me three or four songs to play with them. So I don't even know seven, eight years old, if they even let kids in bars anymore, but that was my weekend. So <laughs> yeah. So my parents really valued music. They thought, and they instilled in us that it's part of arts education is part of education. Culture is part of learning. So, and growth and community and all these things. So they eventually became school principals and they not only had their children play, but they actually brought that same intention to their public schools in Cleveland and had some of the best arts programs in their elementary schools when they were principals for a long time. So I just had to say that shout out to my parents. Yeah. So they started me at, I think they took, I'm the oldest, by the way, they took me at three to the Cleveland Institute of Music in Cleveland, Ohio. And At that time, my mom had read in a teaching journal about the Suzuki method, which is a Japanese teaching method by Dr. Suzuki about the triangle, the parent-teacher-child relationship and teaching. And she was fascinated by it. This was in 1983. And so I became what I like to say her her guinea pig or her trial. (laughs) She she tried it on me, you know, and it worked. It just stuck. And she took me at three back then also. Times have changed so much. 
they didn't make instruments small enough back then. So they told me to come back in a year. And instead, I got to take this wonderful class called Eurythmics, where you get to run in a circle with other three to four-year-olds and clap rhythms and start kind of just getting basic concepts of music in your body. And you get to run around as a kid, right? You're learning, but you're getting to get that energy out. So that class, I have really great memories. Actually, those are some of my earliest memories, honestly, is music when I was three. I would love to see you in a picture with a little violin. (laughs) I will send it to you for sure. I have so many. (laughs) So many. It was such a fun time. I remember the Suzuki method because you would see these little kids playing. I have a friend who went through that program and he's still a violinist. That's all he does. But he does different types of music. But I always thought it was amazing. And the discipline that the kids had at that age. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That was more work than I was doing in symphony class. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the thing is, the Suzuki method got kind of this reputation for being this rote method and very strict and, uh, and things. But actually, that's not what my experience was at all. My experience was time with my mom. And my parents, actually, eventually my dad took over the practicing, but time with my mom at a young age where we just played together music. She played the violin. I played the violin. She was like my private instructor was my instructor, but she practiced with me every day, my mom, because that's part of the Suzuki method. Five minutes a day, actually. It's only five minutes a day, but it got a different reputation. But you know what? It's still going. Spread music all over the world. So started countless musicians like me. So I'm very... I'm a member of the association. That's how much I really care about the organization. Wow. that's I didn't even know it was still around, but I do remember it as a kid. And was being a part of a symphony always your goal or did you have other aspirations? It was always my goal. From the young, I mean, I think that's part of the Suzuki method is they start you in group classes really young. (laughs) Like, I mean, they started me in that rhythm class at three by four, I was in group class. So I like to play in groups with people. I enjoy that kind of music making. I definitely enjoy the social aspect of it. And for me, early on, group class and playing in group, large groups, really, I gravitated towards that more so than solo, even though I did a lot of solo playing as a youngster. But I really just, I like playing in orchestra, always have. And then I was really blessed because coming from Cleveland, Ohio, which is one of the best classical music, well, it's music scenes in general, but classical music, especially, I always had, I always was really privileged to have really great teachers and really great surroundings. So the youth orchestra there is one of the best in the country. Mm -hmm. So I had a really great experience there because I was not only surrounded by the best, but really great people. And they really cared about my growth as a musician and as a human, you know, and I think that's, it's just vital. So for me, a lot of my experiences have been wonderful in music, which is probably why I'm a musician, because <laughs> I was allowed to thrive and I enjoyed it and all those other things. How long have you had this career as a musician outside, professionally, I should say, outside of growing up in the world? Yeah. So what I always say is that I, I mentioned my parents are union, were met as union members. My grandfather bought me a union membership when I was a teenager. My grandfather also played, he was a jazz saxophonist and he was in one of those, actually, I should also say he was, he was one of the founders of the Negro union when the union was segregated, the musicians union, which I think now has probably over 80,000 members has like many unions, a history of segregation Mm -hmm. and the black musicians were put in, you know, they had to start their own union just to get paid (laughs) and fair wages and fair, a lot of things. So my grandfather was very big into unions and 
when I was, I believe, 14 or 15 years old, he paid for my first union membership. And that's why I always say I became a professional musician when I was 14 <laughs> or 15. Because, I mean, when I, w- I was out there, like I had contracts. I was, you know, I learned to write a contract, my own contract at 14 and 15 for like wedding gigs, you know, which is, I think now we've seen in the world entrepreneurship for young people. That's mm-hmm. very common now. And people celebrate that, you know. I will say in the 80s and 90s, I don't know if that was no. done as much, you know. <laughs> you were supposed to so, go to college and get a job. Right. You're supposed to, exactly. So for me, I mean, I started doing wedding gigs when I was in high school and getting paid to perform. I like to say I paid I played in Cleveland for every urban league and every you know, black artists that came through. I played for like Lou Rawls before he died. I played for, you know, you name it, like these legends, because a lot of these wonderful black social groups used to bring in these big name artists to Cleveland and uh, for their fundraisers or for a concert or something. So I used to be there, you know, like their little <laughs> cocktail party violinist or opening act or someone they wanted to highlight, you know, and as a young black musician. And, but they also always paid me. They might've paid me 25 bucks or 50 bucks, a hundred bucks, but it was still, you know, when you're young, that's a nice piece of change. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I was a working musician at that point. So that's when I always like to say I started my professional career, but technically I would say probably in college when I became a member of a lot of the regional orchestras in Cleveland, Akron symphony, I was a member of for a long time, Youngstown symphony during my undergrad. And then I also yeah, I was freelancing. So I would say probably college. Now, when you first walked on a major stage with your viola in hand, what did that Mm -hmm. feel like? Oh, amazing. I mean, I've had really incredible playing opportunities in my life. I will say that some of the highlights of my youth, because when you're young and you get some of these opportunities, they sometimes last longer in your mind than some of the adult ones. I don't know. That's for me. (laughs) But for me, like, the first time I ever played with the Cleveland Orchestra, I played a solo in eighth grade. Um, well, technically it was a uh, Vivaldi four violins, but I played with the Cleveland Orchestra twice in high school, which is a huge feat anyways. So for me, that's still, I mean, I'm 42 years old, but 14 year old and 17 year old Jen playing with the Cleveland Orchestra is still a highlight of my career. I remember it like it was yesterday, or I can give so many examples. What song did you play that first time? Vivaldi uh, four violin concerto was in eighth grade with three other violinists in the Cleveland Orchestra. And then I played for the MLK concert my senior year in high school. And that was a world premiere, actually, which is really special. I look back on these times and I'm like, I didn't even know some of these. I knew it was a big moment, but I just didn't know how it would set me up for my adulthood. So the Cleveland Orchestra has been having a celebration of Martin Luther King for probably 30 years plus. And that performance, they like to highlight different artists. And that year it was me, uh, 99. And I played a world premiere by Adolphus Hailstork. It was called Two Romances for Viola and Orchestra. And I knew at the time it was a great piece. I knew it was a world premiere. What I didn't realize is that Adolphus Hailstork, I mean, I knew he was also a Black, a composer who happened to be Black. Or, and I just knew that all of it was a big deal, but I didn't realize how it shaped me, if that makes sense. Also that the conductor for that concert was a Black woman. K. George oh, Roberts. Wow. Exactly. So it's like I had these experiences as a young person that were very welcoming as a black musician in classical music that I later learned is very rare. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I literally just saw my first black conductor, Lettucey, came to do the music of Nina Simone. 
I live yeah. in St. Louis, so I'm blessed to have the symphony orchestra five minutes away from me. And it was the very first time I had ever seen a black conductor. And it was a black conductor, black art audience, black artist, black band. Of course, not the orchestra, but I cried because it is mm. something that I've always wanted to see my whole life, but had never seen it. And to, and to say that there's a black female conductor, where mm -hmm. is she? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I just don't yeah. see her. See women, exactly. women, period, and black women specifically, not women, there's plenty of women, but black women and those roles, I don't see it. So for you to see it at such a young age, I mean, I can just imagine how that shaped your perspective of the road that you could travel. Exactly. And I never thought that I couldn't, you know, I never saw that there was no such thing as a black woman conductor. I worked with her when I was 17 and she had conducted the Cleveland Orchestra MLK concert probably for at least five years before that. She and Bobby McFerrin were, they conducted the Cleveland Orchestra like every year when I was growing up, you know? So it, those experiences have stuck with me and that's why I know it's possible. And I mean, I also feel like we've gone backwards in the industry, which is why we have to have these conversations because I feel like the nineties were probably a little bit more thriving in two thousands. You know, it's, it just did not happen. So yeah, black female conductors. I, I think I would uh, literally I fall out them. if I had the, that experience <laughs> because it's yeah. such a powerful position with the symphony because you were literally controlling all of these in incredible mus musicians with this timeless music and you get to with every stroke determine what the people hear that's powerful yeah and yeah. to see a black woman in that position i, I think i would just pass out <laughs> honestly <laughs> i mean it he, it means so much i mean first of all women conductors in general are starting to get more and more recognition. But at the top, the biggest budgeted orchestras, the orchestras with the most resources, of course, you know, these conductors are are rare. And then you add black to it, right? A black woman. I mean, it's it's like non-existent. So there are more and more. They've always existed. Um, they haven't been giving opportunities. So you'll see more and more, I think. I think the way that first of all, I, I should say I think young people don't necessarily have the, they don't know the barriers. I think they're, they're, my experience with young black musicians is that they still have a lot of hope and a lot of positivity about the industry, especially I would say the high schoolers in the in the early college, you know, and they feel like they can do this and they are not, they're still going to major in music and classical music and things like that. And they're still going to apply to conducting school and, so that's what's fantastic. So we, I think as adults, we just have to not put these limits on them, right? And tell them they can't do this and what we think their path should be. And because there's no right, right way anymore, I don't think, to get into this industry or to be at the top of this industry. It's, you know, outside of the usual, which is what <laughs> nepotism and um, <laughs> the legacy situation. Rich. The legacy situation, exactly. <laughs> Those will probably never go away. But <laughs> how are you able to navigate to get to these stages with the Oregon Symphony and Richmond Symphony? How did you navigate? How what was your process? What was your audition like? What was my audition? Oh, okay. Yeah, the audition process, I will say this is something we talk about all the time in Black Orchestral Network. And 
now it's of course being talked about in the industry. So I just have to preface it by saying almost all orchestras are union orchestras. So in the contract and the contractual bargaining agreement, there are union guidelines about how auditions run. Every orchestra is different. And then I will say now the Sphinx organization, which is one of the leading organizations on diversity in classical music, they have put out guidelines for orchestras for their audition process to make them more fair because we all hear about the blind audition process and how, or maybe not everyone hears it, but there's a whole thing about the blind audition process in classical music in orchestras that people think, oh, well, it's fair. It's not, and we can talk about that, <laughs> but I will say my audition process in Oregon was you send in your resume and they give you an audition time. Everything is on to audition. You have to pay for everything yourself. They don't provide stipends or anything. So Oregon, I believe, was my sixth or seventh audition that year. And I was very low on funds. I luckily had enough <laughs> to fly across the country from Cleveland to Oregon to Portland, Oregon, and house myself in a hotel for like four weeks or four days, excuse me, four days. But basically, I always like to say it's a version of, um, what is it, American Idol or something like that. So you have a preliminary round, a semifinal, and a final round. In the preliminary round, let's say in my audition for Oregon, I believe there were 107 violists invited. I was given in preliminary, let's just say I was candidate 57 or something. So they say candidate 57 is on stage. You get about five minutes on stage. They give you a list of excerpts you had to prepare before you got there. And the whole committee is behind the screen. They can't see you. You can't see them. You play for five minutes. They only know you as candidate 57 or whatever your number is. You walk off stage and you hope you make it through to the next round. On average, usually if you have a hundred people in the first round, you probably, the semifinals would be go down to 10 people. So they cut 90 people out of the prelims. So in Oregon, I made it to the semifinal round. Oh, and I should say that that's for one position only in the orchestra, in the viola section. Oh. So then, yeah, I, I forgot to, that's, yeah. <laughs> so it's for one position. A hundred wow. people cut, cut down to 10 for one position. So oh, wow. then I play the semifinals. They give you a little longer on stage, usually 15 to 20 minutes. They may ask you to correct some things, you know, to see how flexible you are. Then they deliberate the committee. Same thing, screen is up and they go to the finals. And in my case, let's just say my, my audition was a little different because in that year they had two openings. They advertised in the paper for two openings. So they actually had a little bit more, they had more people in the semifinals, but let's just, I'll do it on a basic audition, a hundred people to 10 people, 10 people in the semis, they'll cut it down for one position, usually to three to four players in the finals. So I'm up against three to four players in the finals for this one position. That's when in Oregon, the screen came down. So it was not a fully blind audition. They could mm -hmm. see who I was. And at that point in Oregon, they have your resume too. So they can see who you study with, what school you've gone to, your work history, all these things, which brings in bias. But so anyways, so I'm in the finals. I play for about 30. Actually, my finals were pretty long. I would say 30 to 45 minutes. The conductor, I should also say that in the first two rounds, the committee is made up of musicians of the orchestra. Mm -hmm. In the last round, the community is made up of musicians in the orchestra and the music director, who is the conductor of the orchestra. And that in most orchestras, the committee is advisory. So they can recommend who to hire in some orchestras. In Oregon, 
you can only consider people who have a certain number of votes. So a majority of votes from the committee, but the music director usually in all orchestras has the full responsibility of hiring, meaning they can say, well, I agree with the committee and hire this person. They can say, I don't agree with the committee and not hire that person. I've seen it happen both ways. <laughs> if it's a good day, everybody's happy. Everybody's, you know, you'll get close to unanimous or majority music directors like you're hired. That's what happened with me. And I got the job. I've been on committees where you go through that whole process of listening to hours and hours of auditions. People pay money to come and you walk away with nobody hired. That's not a great day. That's not a successful audition in my opinion. So not only is race an issue within the symphony, but also class, because you said you had to be invited in. Yeah, so it's not sure. like an open. It's not like an open audition, or it doesn't seem to be an outreach to many different places. <laughs> right. Exactly. So it's very and specific. Are... And then you also said they check your resume, so nobody's taking any chances on anybody to say we can exactly. pull them in, or we can pull them up, or we can train them. There's no training program. You have to come ready. You have to come with the resume and you have to be able to afford to audition. That's a class issue. Yeah, it's a huge class issue. And I will say that the industry, especially organizations like Sphinx, is not only are they having conversations about it, they've created some programs to kind of help with that. They have a program they call the National Alliance of Audition Support for Black and Brown musicians to apply to get funds to travel to these auditions to get coaching for these auditions from professionals in the industry. So people take that retreat, they can sign up to take that retreat and they'll get professional coaching so that if let's say hypothetically, they don't go to the right school and they don't have all the checks and stuff, they can become prepared and they can get immersed in, in it to allow a little bit more fairness. But there's a press for open auditions in more orchestras. The Black Orchestral Network, I know we are going to we just had this conversation the other day. I think we're going to, we've definitely signed on in the sense of we support the Sphinx organization's guidelines on auditions, on um, what they say. So we've already long supported that. And I think some of our members have probably even worked on that language with Sphinx. But I think we're going to have our own, share our own thoughts on auditions publicly soon, because uh, I think more voices just need to be heard on this. Well, sign me up. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Sorry, I should add one more thing. Okay. Orchestras are tenured. So once you get that job in an orchestra, I mean, I replaced someone in Oregon who was in the orchestra for 56 years. So this is why it's so important to address these audition issues because the turnover in orchestras is just not, it's just so slow that we will never see orchestras that look like us if we don't address this now. I know it. Uh, I told you I live in St. Louis. So the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, of course, mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. uncle's cousin, Charlene Shaw Clark, played violin for 45 years and they have yet to replace her with another black woman. And she retired maybe six or seven years ago. And wow. so for that long, she was the only black woman in the orchestra unless a guest came or wow. a different, you know a different type of performance, but she was there for 45 years yeah. and they never had another black woman, nor did they replace her with another black woman. So nope, that's, I'm not going to say what it is, but it's not cool. Right. No, it's not. <laughs> and they'll say, well, these are our audition rules. That's what all orchestras say. Well, we, these are our audition rules. This is how we've always done it. 
as if review after 45, 50 years is not in, <laughs> like we can't review the rules and change them. Yeah. I'm- you know, and that keeps the energy of that elitist status, even though classical music is a global music. You hear it everywhere from cartoons to movie scores to video games contemporary and pop artists it's everywhere so it's time to really open up those stages to different voices and different perspectives that's just that's just the way the world looks different than 1865 you know agreed <laughs> it just looks different agreed and so give us the origin story of the black orchestral network because that is how i reached out to you yeah so the black orchestral network really started with a conversation of of i would say four four individuals, but it was a series of conversations that a lot of us were having in the classical music industry who were Black about, I mean, you know, it was summer of 2020, George Floyd's murder, and we were, a lot of us were just unhappy in many different aspects. And it wasn't new. It was just, we had time to talk about it with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people's orchestras were- the stages were shut down they were shut down. So people could have these daily conversations about change and what we want to do and how we want the orchestras, how we want orchestras to look. If we want to create our own spaces, I mean, that's part of the conversation, not just changing PWI orchestras, but creating, do we want to create new funds and new orchestras and how do we uplift and highlight and how do we create community mostly? So that's how it started. It started with a series of people having conversations And I joined in a little later because I would have these conversations with my friends over the phone, like one-to-one, but not in a group setting. And for a long time, I've, I think I've mentioned, you know, I like orchestras. I like community. I like groups. And I've wanted to start some sort of orchestra association for like, I, at least a decade. It's been on my radar to do. I think it's necessary. I think we need an advocacy group because there are a lot of people who just don't feel comfortable when there's something that goes wrong in an audition, they feel like they were mistreated or they feel like they were discriminated against. There's a reporting system for the union, but there's not really anybody that can really stand up for an individual. And if you're afraid that you're going to be blacklisted, you're not going to say anything. I mean, we've seen this in harassment. We've seen this, you know, in various ways. So I've long felt that black people needed an advocacy group in this industry. We are more than an advocacy group. It's just one thing that I'm really interested in which grab, which helped me gravitate towards Black Orchestral Network. We spent a long time, people ask us about this, so I'll just mention it. We spent a long time <laughs> talking about why was it orchestral versus classical? Why is it not the Black Classical Network? Or why is it orchestral? And it was really important to the founders that we don't limit genre of music, that we focus on the orchestral aspect, the community aspect of it, mostly the instrument aspect and not so much the musical label because as we know black people play all types of music in groups (laughs) with orchestral instruments so we didn't want to do that to ourselves even though often classical music pigeonholes themselves so let me backtrack a little bit give give us the our listeners the, the definitions between a symphony and an orchestra and orchestral just so that people understand that it is completely different it's not for me it's actually yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, it's uh, actually the same. Mm-hmm. I think it's a group of musicians who play instruments that are that are seen in an orchestra. So that is, you know, a harp, a piano is an orchestra, percussion, violin, viola. 
So that is, is to me the same actually. And I think the difference is that symphonies, like you mentioned before, you saw Lettucey and I know that St. Louis has had, I mean, they play St. Louis symphony plays all kinds of different concerts. They play film music. They, like you said, and they played, they play R and B and they'll play country and they'll play whatever genres, you know, te- uh, we even did a game. Prince tribute that was fabulous. <laughs> Prince tribute, exactly. And that's still with orchestra. So I think that was our whole point, that we okay. we don't want to limit ourselves to making people feel like they can't have a community in this space. We wanted the instrumentalists to have a community in this space. So not necessarily by the type of music they play. Yeah. So, but I would say also we're not, while we work with other groups of different instruments, meaning like vocalists, meaning like composers and things like that, which all have to do with orchestra music. I'm not going to even say it doesn't, you know, um, it does. But I think our focus is more on the instrumental part. Yes. So can you explain a little bit deeper? Because from what I'm understanding, (laughs) there's a Mm -hmm. wall up (laughs) Mm -hmm. and there's the the old guard that's like, no, this we're pure and this is how we're going to do it. And these are the people who are going to do it. And then the Mm -hmm. outside breaking through are these young people that are saying, I'm going to do hip hop. I'm going to do jazz. I'm going to do whatever I want to do with my violin. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we're going to have it on this stage. So you Mm -hmm. all are are ushering in to be the door openers, (laughs) the key, Mm -hmm. so that there can be a fusion of all of these different types of music, not only diversity of people, diversity of thought, but diversity of music. And here's the, my thought process is, if the old guard continues on this way, it's going to die because they're all old and, and you're not allowing one financially, you're going to hinder yourself. So let's talk about the financials, because if you don't have something that interests the young people, why would they continue to come? Why would they come? You know, so how is the lack of diversity hindering the progress of the classical scene? I should say. I mean, you just stated it very well. I mean, financially, of course. I mean, if if your audience is empty, who are you playing for? That's what I say all the time. Sometimes I'm amazed that we rehearse so much in classical music for one concert or two concerts. And I'm just like, but nobody's there. What are we doing it for? Granted, I, I do get gratification from playing music, of course. You know, and there is a lot of, I would say, yeah, I, I just think that I understand why people want to play this, play classical music. I love classical music. I always have. Right now, I'm really focused on finding all the works that we can't find from Black composers that I know that exist. You know, there's a lot of people working on it right now. So that's really interesting time and fun. Every day I learn something. I'm like, oh, I've never heard of this composer or this piece. So anyways, but that's where I get my passion from. But I understand that people like to play Strauss and people want to play Tchaikovsky and you know, they don't mind playing it every season and they get something from it. But I still don't fundamentally fundamentally understand that if no one comes to hear it, what are we really doing? Right. So I agree. And I also have to say that classical music, black people love classical music. People in general love classical music, but black people especially love classical music. So this idea that we don't is just because you people don't know how to how to say it in a way and share it in a way that is important to black people. It's not about a lack of, of caring. I mean, I always say that Beethoven had his 250th birthday. Every orchestra was celebrating Beethoven's 250th birthday. Everybody was programming Beethoven's symphonies and you name it. 
and it didn't the hashtag i'm on twitter you know hashtag beethoven 250 was a thing that honestly not many people cared about let's just be honest not many mm-hmm. people cared about mm-hmm. so but the one day that people cared about beethoven 250 was when black twitter cared about beethoven <laughs> and it was the only time that it was <laughs> yes. trending for like eight hours i don't know if you remember that day it was a great day on black twitter i it, somebody someone posted about beethoven being black you know there's an argument was he black was he not his was his mother more i'll let the historians decide but I'm someone posted <laughs> exactly 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 so he's beethoven, one of us <laughs> exactly and it was eight hours of hilarity I mean, I just couldn't stop laughing. I mean, people, videos, you know, in the car, listening to Beethoven 4 and Beethoven 9. And I didn't know that. I mean, it was just the best. This is the only time. And that, that just goes to show we are the, the tastemakers, right? And so for me, I just, to say that, I mean, we do, like I said, we embrace people from all genres of music, but also highlight the fact that Black people have been in classical music. Black composers have just been forgotten, sometimes buried, sometimes blocked, you know, all these things. And so we're here to bring it to light. And yeah, so yeah, Beethoven was Black. So that was a fun day. (laughs) There's a Black Twitter is everything. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, Lizzo is a great example. Lizzo and the flute, right? Yes. So we already know that Lizzo is responsible for, I think it's Yamaha flutes, their sales going up by 40%. Okay. And then we also know that Lizzo and the Library of Congress, when are people talking about flute and classical music like that? Or even knowing that there's a Library of Congress, like, what is that? Exactly. (laughs) And a Black woman did that. Like, come on, you know? And a pair of sweats in the middle of the floor. Right. Just being herself. Like, she didn't put on a tuxedo and, you know, look like Marie Antoinette when she walked in around with that glass flute. She was just herself. And what it showed is, like you just said, we are all lovers of all types of music. Exactly. Country, rock, classical. And we've been there Mm -hmm. (laughs) from the beginning. From the beginning. And and I think Lizzo brings up such a great, I mean, her energy anyways is amazing. But I just think she's inspiring a bunch of people to do exactly what we're talking about right now. Don't limit yourself. You can play how you want to, what you want to. You know, I mean, I think in one of those clips of she played Poulenc, you know, Sonata. And like, it's just. Because people don't understand that she's trained, but she has to do what she has to do to get her music out there. It's like Mm -hmm. you have to do what you have to do until you can do what you want to do. And so for her, the avenue that she went with her music and her look and all of that took her to that place where she wanted to be, which was in that historic moment where she played that flute. Mm -hmm. And now orchestras are begging her, by the way, to do shows with them. (laughs) I remember when Lettucey came the second time, she said, the first time I came, there were only 200 people here and I was not coming back. But when I tell you that place was packed full of Black folks from the front to the back, I don't think the symphony had, I mean, we, of course we do. They do. We like, I belong, but they do, you know, black history month and things like that and Christmas, but for, to be in the middle of the week playing the music of Nina Simone, it was packed and it was just such a beautiful experience. And she's like, okay, St. Louis is now one of my favorite cities to perform in. 
And the thing, my point is, is that when you put our music on that stage or something that represents us, we show up. Mm-hmm. Period. Agreed. And people don't care if it's an orchestra or not. And I think that's the thing. We don't classify like, oh, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I, I think there is something that people gravitate towards because they're like, oh, this is, you know, let us see what the symphony. That's this amazing. Fancy. Yeah, the symphony. <laughs> exactly. Fancy. I we were dressed, dressed up. up and makeup exactly. on and hair did. It was like, exactly. oh, this is fancy. The experience. Yeah. We deserve that experience as well. Right. But I think what I was trying to say is that people don't classify, oh, well, I mean, orchestra, That I think this is exactly why we call it orchestral. Orchestra is orchestra to people. They see a symphony behind, let us see, it's the same as seeing the symphony play on the weekend with Yo-Yo Ma. It's still the same orchestra, right? Just different artists headline. So why do we put these classifications in like Yo-Yo Ma's classical and blah, 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 and spend more resources on that than and rehearse this music more. Granted, I love Yo-Yo Ma. Sorry. Don't wait. I love Yo-Yo Ma. I do too. But, I do too. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's not shade on him. But, you know, we put, business puts our music in category, in a category of less than. And that's what we're trying to, trying to say. We, you, there are, it, this whole, where are the mythical Black people that don't come to orchestras? They come. You just have to give them something they want to see. And that's no different than any other business kind of <laughs> venture you know people will buy the product if they want you know if it's something it's, they want it's very true and like you said it's it's very segmented like we're going to put up and that's that's the one reason why I don't like the word diversity because mm-hmm. diversity it seems like an othering thing it's like no let's give equal resources to music you know let's make it equitable let's make it inclusive let's make it music justice because everybody deserves to hear everybody's music you know a white kid deserves to hear Lizzo or Lettucey just as much as a black kid deserves to hear Yo-Yo Ma you allow your white children to go see an Asian performer they can go see a black performer too let me not get on my uh soapbox yeah exactly bring it back a little bit (laughs) no it's okay no I'm with you and and they will too I mean the kids know you know, yeah, some of the love stuff it. from parents, the kids know, because like, if you look at Kendrick Lamar has done one orchestra show, he did it with the National Symphony, probably now, probably like, I keep forgetting COVID years, I have to add three. So probably right. like six or seven <laughs> years. <laughs> to me, it was like two years ago, but no, COVID, pre-COVID. So probably five or seven years ago. And that show sold out in like, I don't know, at the Kennedy Center, like in 10 minutes or something, of course. And the National Symphony was not prepared, I don't think, the Kennedy Center in the way their ticketing systems were. Because that one, it was very interesting, you know, a lot of um, kind of sk- Ticketmaster kind of scammers, kind of, I shouldn't say Ticketmaster scammers, but you know what I mean? They, they bulk bought some tickets, but that audience, if you see, if you look at the pictures, I mean, and this is in DC, which is a black city and also economically people have some wealth, but the fronts of that audience, very, very white at mm. Kendrick Lamar the opening, the front seats that also could be the Kennedy center. And I don't know if they, you know, give dignitaries. It's also DC, you know, right. so you never know. <laughs> I mean, whole political thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could, who knows? With all the embassies and I'm not too deep into the who got what, but it's a very interesting, you know what I mean? People will come. So, but it is interesting because it's, it's Kendrick Lamar. And if you don't know the depth of his work, you just say, Oh, he's just a rapper. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, no, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like when he yeah. did his award winning album, he hired 25 jazz musicians and put them in a room and said, make me some music. So mm-hmm. we have to stop seeing color as a as a shield and get to know the people. And that's why I call it justice as opposed to diversity, because you just have to understand that it's look at us as a as a person and not as your image of who you think we are or what you think we're like. And so that's why I was really intrigued by your organization, because I was like, finally, (laughs) somebody is stepping up to do something. I mean, you're going to be like the Catherine Dunham and Alvin Ailey did for dance or the Dance Theater of Harlem did for ballet. Because there are so many people who don't get the opportunities. And if we don't create our own tables and push it because they're going to be wondering, well, what are you all doing? Why are your concerts sold out every night? <laughs> I <laughs> well, agree. Maybe we need a little bit sprinkled over here. Well, maybe we've been talking about it for the last 30 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I will say that one of the best things about Black Orchestral Network is that we are creating a community of musicians. and. What we've had, we've had two what we call convenings. So, you know, small group sessions for Black musicians to talk about how they kind of want to see it shaped up, right? What things are they interested in? Because the six of us right now, we might know what we're interested in, right. but we're also actually all kind of relatively in the same age, except for one person. We're going to grow our our steering committee. <laughs> uh, that's also that's also on our uh, on our two year we're, we're in a. Plan. Yeah, exactly. We're actually in our, our coaching sessions right now to to talk about our plan. But yeah, because we're all around the same age age group except for one person. And we need we just need different voices to come in as well and have a say about the future they want in this industry. But what I've realized in these convenings is that people actually just really need a community. Just even having a space to talk for <laughs> two hours, one hour, 90 minutes. I mean, there is just a lot of and it's not just trauma, you know, some of it is, uh, there's some real trauma in this industry for people that they're only starting to share, which is really sad because some of these, some of these musicians I've known for 20 years, you know, 30 years, and I had no idea that some of this stuff happened. So, it, you know, but um, it's also to share joy and idea and brainstorm and connect because like you were saying early on, you didn't know some of these people existed. I knew, I would say I had in my age group, generation of orchestra players. I know a lot of people, but I would say the generation before me, they didn't because I mean, granted we have social media now and internet, so it's different, but they didn't really, they're not, they weren't as connected. They actually really thought there was like a handful of them, you know, (laughs) in the industry. And it's like, I mean, you, you just even go, I've been doing some more film work in, in LA and there are just a long history of black studio musicians. You know, and they really, because they've been living on that West Coast and living that LA life for so long, they're not really connected to anything that's happening <laughs> and anywhere, and anywhere else. And it's not on them and it's not on us. It's just they've been in that genre of the studio life recording. And I mean, to me, just already there, I'm like, whoa, I had no idea. They've been in the industry 20, 30, 40 years, you know, like, <laughs> it's oh, just so amazing. you just need to have one big old dinner party. And exactly everybody, and you'll say, What? Yeah. How long have you? And what? And you'll be like, they'll say, I've been doing this for 50 years. I played with Frank Sinatra and 
so-and-so and so-and-so. And you're like, what? Exactly. <laughs> Just get Quincy and the, and- Jones on board and you'll have all the people you need. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I'm sorry. But, you know, we say that, but you, I think that Hollywood, what you're starting to see now, thanks to friends of mine like Stephanie Matthews, who is on our steering committee or was on our founders committee, I should say, and works mainly in Hollywood, but she works all over. She contracts a lot for a lot of the stars. She, I think she contracted Lizzo's all black orchestra, you know, and um, some other these, if you see, a, there's a couple contractors, wonderful violinists who, if you see an all black ensemble, they're doing that, you know, but you'd be surprised. Some of these artists have no idea that you can have an orchestra of black people fill an actual orchestra. They think, are there enough musicians? Because they've been, always been told that. They've been told that by contractors who just didn't have the network to hire Black musicians or didn't want to. So they're discovering, too, that that's why you're seeing more and more artists. You that's know, you'll why. see, you know, I think Beyonce did her, you know, she had her video presentation with an all-Black orchestra. She took Black musicians on her last tour. And that's why Ava DuVernay started Array, because mm-hmm. they were saying, well, we can't find the people behind the scenes. She said, oh, you can't? Okay. Well, here's a whole website. <laughs> right. No more excuses. Here's a whole website. Mm-hmm. Hire them. And you're seeing that. I mean, I played on two film soundtracks in the last couple of years, along with some other really great musicians, Black musicians, because film composers are starting to ask for that. You know, Chris Bowers, who composer who music I love. I love his music so much. He, what did he recently do? He wrote the soundtrack to, oh God, what's that big Shonda Rhyme show? Bridgerton. He did Space Jam 2. He's going to do the Chevalier movie that's coming out soon. He did the I Green Book. I am excited about that movie as I, I was about Black Panther. I cannot wait. I was like, who is this? Now, who is this man? <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about Chevalier. Chevalier St. George has such an interesting story. So I'm, I'm super excited about it. But Chris Bowers is doing amazing work and he's, he's pretty young. I think he's mid thirties in Hollywood. And I mean, he's been asking on some of these that he can ask for, you know, black, black musicians. Um, Hans Zimmer, I played on the, the Lion King live action. And he asked for, I think a 50% black orchestra. It's the Lion King. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I should, I'm going to say it was a 50% black orchestra because that's what it was. I don't know what he asked for. I should say, I should clarify. I don't know what he asked for. I know that he asked for black musicians. For all I know, he could have asked for more. And this is what they settled on. Right. Also, you, need, you know, right, right, I shouldn't, right, right. I shouldn't. So I don't want to throw him under the bus because I'm sure, you know, those things are not I get it. I get um, it. Which is crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. That's even negotiable, but. Yeah, but it's more, it's happening more and more. I think people now understand we're out there. Now it's about opportunity and creating space. And that's where you're seeing we're at right now is the the gatekeeping. <laughs> the gatekeeping's coming out. <laughs> you all are going to bust down the walls. That's what's going to happen. Because once you get the kids on Twitter involved, oh, what mm-hmm. do you mean? Oh, we're just going to show up. You know how they do. Oh, exactly. you don't want us here? We're just going to show up. <laughs> Exactly. What? This has been a lovely conversation. I could literally talk to you for hours. And anytime you want to come back and have a conversation, you are welcome. Super sweet. Thank I am you. an email away. And I know that you're in Taiwan for the next 18 months. Mm-hmm. First of all, Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's it's beautiful. It's warm. <laughs> so my husband is working here. 
Okay. He's been working here for a year and in his contracts through August, 2024 um, on the, on the chip shortage. So he works at a microchip for a company that's working mm-hmm. on the microchip crisis. So right, right, right. he's here doing that. And I, he supported me when I went from my orchestra on stage change to administration. We had, when we were living in Portland, it was much easier for us because he could work in Portland. He's also, I should preface it by saying he's Dutch. He's a Dutch citizen. So he could work in Portland and I was working in Portland, but I had said to him, you know, like I feel the need to do something and I need to be in a place in a different place and do something different and have more of a say. And he supported me moving and that did not make it easier on our work. And then the (laughs) pandemic came in and he couldn't get into the U S because, you know, the U S was closed and they, and Trump canceled all the H1. Yeah. So actually he was super supportive of my plans, but then, you know, sometimes the best laid made plans, (laughs) (laughs) you know, things happen, a pandemic happened. So he had this opportunity to come up in Taiwan and I was just like, I don't know when the country is going to open. I, you know, we don't know anything. So why don't you take it? And he loves it here. And so I was telling him, you supported me. Why don't I do the same, you know? So we're going to do this for 18 months. I'm having a great time. I plan on learning Mandarin. Hopefully I'll start in January. I also feel the need to leave the U.S. right now for a lot of reasons that I think people would understand. So it just all came (laughs) at the right time. (laughs) You know, so. I understand. I, I feel what you're saying on so many levels. And I just am happy for you because as a Black woman, you get away from all the stuff that we're burdened with. Yeah. You get to go do you, be you, explore a new culture, a new world, and you get to go be your fabulous self (laughs) without anybody questioning you or hindering you or trying to block you. You just go get to go be you. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I always tell Black girls, if you have the opportunity to stop and just do nothing, go do that. We've worked our whole lives. And like you said, you started when you were three. So (laughs) I think you deserve a break today. I know you're still doing but there's Mm -hmm. a... And and that's what my husband said. I mean, Mm -hmm. he said the same thing. Like, you know, he prefaced it not so much as a Black girl, um, but I'm going to tell him that. You know, you need to think of this. (laughs) But um, yeah, but for him, he thinks that about Americans, you know? We do that all the time. We don't understand a work-life balance and mm-hmm. we don't take time for, for ourselves. And, you know, he's really good at coming home around the same time. You know? <laughs> like, I'm like, what is this? You know, I normally had concerts and I, or I, my parents had a meeting or something, you know, and he's like, it's very Dutch. It's very mm-hmm. Dutch to be like the work day's over. Let's go home and spend time with family, you know? And so mm-hmm. I'm appreciative of that, that I have, I'm learning that, you know? So, so with everything that you've done, are you just going to take some time and figure out what you want to do in the future or are you just going to chill out? I already know. I don't know if chill out's in my personality. I'm going to try though. (laughs) For me, chill out is probably working like 20 hours a week. But what I plan to do here, like I said, I want to learn a different language. To me, that's a high priority. I want to advance some of these things. Like I can now devote more time to bond and the group. <laughs> like mm-hmm. At first, you know, the pandemic happened. So we had time to meet. We meet every week, by the way, but mm-hmm. we had time to meet every week. And I was going to take responsibility for some things and blah, blah, blah. Some of that has shifted to other people, but I'm mm-hmm. ready to take some of that responsibility back mm-hmm. um, and become 
way more active now that I've, I've phased out more and more my um, Richmond Symphony uh, position. Mm-hmm. And then I plan on getting some of my health back, actually. By what I mean in terms of like um, physical, you know, fitness. I used to run half marathons and plan them with my friends and stuff. I haven't done that since before the pandemic. And, you know, pandemic weight is real. And, <laughs> but, once I hit 40, you know, it's just not the same. It's just, I have to be more mindful. And so I'm looking forward to that. It's very hard though, because Taiwan has good food. It's such a good eating city. Oh, why did I move to somewhere that has good food? <laughs> just cut out the rice. Just eat rice twice a week. <laughs> I know. It's so hard. The food is so good. And I'm in Tainan, which is literally the best food city apparently in Taiwan. So it's even harder. I'm, Oh, I can't even talk about it. It's so good. (laughs) I mean, I really just want to eat my way through the city. Um, So I have to move more. Let's just put it that way. I have to move more. But I'm looking forward to just exploring, taking, exploring. And I've worked really hard in the last three years, like a lot. So I just want to not work as much and spend more time on helping people and volunteering and projects and giving. I mentor. I like to mentor young people. Also, I just like learning from young people. (laughs) I like hearing what they're talking about. Oh, my God. I love it. They're the best. My God, kids are always like, auntie. Like, what? (laughs) What's that? that? (laughs) I mean, they're just so, I am amazed by all this stuff they have to deal with. I, Yeah. yeah. Not to go too down the rabbit hole, but I don't even think I could go to high school Mm. with like this gun situation. I, I don't know how they do it. Go to middle school and high school, and I'd probably be a hot mess. I would be um, like, uh, homeschool me. I'm not going back ever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they are so resilient. Yeah. And I just know it's because they have had to take on so much stuff at an early age. But the way yeah. they handle things, and I know they have anxiety and depression, but overall, as right. a group, they just, they when it's time to take action, they're like, okay, let's go. Let's and do it. They hit it and they make it happen. And I, I love it. I'm learning a lot from them. <laughs> Me too. I'm learning Me too. a lot. I learn a lot about relationships. <laughs> Friendship, relationships. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah. Yeah. Money, finance. Yeah. Like how to, oh, I swear from some of my younger colleagues, <laughs> like how they deal with job situations or like, I, I just am always amazed like, Really? But like, I learned something from it. Their level of loyalty is to themselves. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, oh no, we have to stay here for 30 years. And then they're like, I don't like it. I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't like the way she talked to me. So I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) I I just have to, I learned so much. Yeah. I worked for Richmond for three years, three and a half years, actually, technically. And I'm still staying on, you know, as an advisor and consulting with them. And I felt like bad because I'm like, that's a really short amount of time considering in a nonprofit world, what the industry, but the young people are like, are you kidding me? You gave it three years. <laughs> like, like, why did you stay I mean, so long? right (laughs) you hit your targets move on (laughs) just go live your life who cares I mean I learned so much that is so funny well this has been a joy and a pleasure and thank you for getting up early because I know what is it nine in the morning there it's 7 p.m here 
seven. Yes, nine thirteen a.m. Yes. So it is seven thirteen p.m. here, and like I said, you have an open invitation. I'd like to hear more about what your organization is doing. I would like to hear more about your time as a black girl in Taiwan. That's a unique experience. And oh yes. Yeah more of your journey. And um, I can't wait to see what you create as you explore your new life. And I'm with your hubby that you have missed out on for, for several years, three years. For, or for, <laughs> we were apart for seven months. I said, never again. Oh, <laughs> seven months. It's crazy. It's like 90 day fiance or something. You're right. <laughs> Anyways, I just it's wanna... been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank it was wonderful. you. I had a ball and you're a joy. And I just hearing your stories, tell your parents, I said, hurrah. I will. <laughs> My parents will listen for sure. Oh, that tell them. I, I love to hear that how they supported your interest. And, you know, we hear so many kids say, My parents didn't support me. And to hear that they not only supported you, but did what they had to do to make sure that you were successful, that in itself is just a beautiful story. So I love yeah. that. Yeah. So again, my parents support all Black musicians. They show up, especially my dad uh-huh. in Chicago. He'll show up at every concert. <laughs> He's if you are Black <laughs> and you play an orchestral <laughs> instrument, he will be at your concert and probably has been. Yeah. My mom is not as much in Cleveland, but my dad is that person. I would love to hear you, your mom, and your dad do a jazzy symphonic collaboration and put it out there <laughs> on the web. <laughs> I don't think you want to hear them play anymore, but <laughs> you know, I'll do it. I can do it. <laughs> I'll do it with some friends. Yeah. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate your time. And thank you for joining the Black Women Amplified podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, we are out. Thank you for listening to Black Women Amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and log on to blackwomenamplified.com for more information. Keep shining. Keep shining.